0: In a career that has never disappointed and regularly surprised, Die Roll has experienced it all. She has been mistaken for Mrs. Michael Jackson, and she has worked in the golden years of television variety with the Steve Vizard and Don Lane Tonight Shows. She's mixed with rock stars, movie stars, and royalty. Her contact book could be used as a platform to reach the top shelf. She knows everybody. Commencing her career in nursing, she soon moved to roles in the media, working in many facets of television and radio, ultimately crafting a dynamic and hugely successful career in promotion and publicity, specialising in entertainment. Stints with roadshow film distributors, The Nine Network and the Paul Dainty Corporation provided her with terrific skills in diplomacy and connection, ultimately leading to the establishment of her own consultancy firm, Die Roll Publicity. Dye has handled tours and media relations for a vast parade of personnel. Willie Nelson, Ruby Wax, Elton John, Jerry Seinfeld, Bob Dylan, Mick Jagger and Tara Moss. And also music festivals, orchestras and dance companies. She is diplomatic, delightful and reliable in delivering the best communication between client and audience. She keenly defines the role of the publicist. It was a treat to catch up with Dye and discuss her extensive career and to seek a few fascinating anecdotes.
1: Because everything's just come to a grinding
0: halt. But, um, you know, you just take one day as it comes, I guess. Yes. Oh, it looks like an old cliche, but we're all in the same boat, I guess. And um, we just have to hold fast and and hopefully come out all right at the other end.
1: Exactly. So you're in your kitchen.
0: I'm in my kitchen. And are you in your kitchen?
1: Yeah, Yeah, I'm in my kitchen
0: too. Great. The kitchens are the new studios of the world.
1: They are, aren't they? It's <laughs> fantastic. And it's, got, it'll, it's going to be very interesting to see um, how we all go back after this because so much everyone's really up to speed now with the, um, all the technology. And a lot of people, I think, will work from home now.
0: Yeah, I think some really interesting positives will come out of it uh, because people oh. have been forced to, to learn new tricks. And, uh, yeah. yeah, as you say, it I might be worry. that... We all work at home one day a week or it's certainly interaction's yes. going to change.
1: Oh much, much different. Much more different. I, know. I hope I didn't get you up too early. Sorry? I hope I didn't get you up too
0: early. Oh no, no, I tend to rise up uh, quite quite early, so so that's good. Yeah, so do I. Um, that's why I'm what?
1: single. Like sometimes <laughs> there's like a spinning
0: Me, me too. <laughs> Uh, great to say hello at last, Die Roll. I mean, this conversation's been in the making for a couple of years.
1: <laughs> it has indeed, Peter. I'm one of those dreadful people. I'm always too busy to do anything. So, um, you know, anyway, this is great. Good well, timing.
0: That, that's the sign of a, an effective publicist, I guess.
1: Yes, very much so. And, you know, we publicists, we tend to live and breathe our work. So it's sort of 24-hour days. You know, everything's a picture opportunity. You know, you you sleep with a pen and paper by your bed. Yeah, like you're forever on, really.
0: You're on call, aren't you, I guess, just um, to manage all sorts of situations.
1: Oh, yeah. Some we can never talk about. Some we will take to our proverbial PR office in the sky. (laughs) If we know all the secrets, (laughs) is there such a thing as bad publicity? No, I don't think so. No, I agree with um, Mick Jagger. uh, Where Mick Jagger said, "There's no such thing as bad publicity as long as you're spelling spelling your name right." And uh, I don't think there's any such thing as bad publicity. Uh, You know, we've just had a uh, footballer down here. Because the biggest crime you can commit in Victoria, of course, is be an AFL footballer and get drunk and smash into four cars and uh, then escape the scene of a crime. And that's what happened here in, in Melbourne on Thursday. And it's terrible for the club and it's dreadful and all that sort of stuff. But, gee, it was delicious publicity <laughs> it made great reading and applied a lot of laughter which we shouldn't be laughing at Poor boy 25 years old very silly but you know, no there's no such thing as bad publicity not
0: well as Oscar Wilde said I mean the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about
1: that's exactly right exactly I agree with that totally
0: yes so do you, have, do you have a Teledex or a, a little black book or, is it, or or all your contacts in your phone?
1: I have a fantastic contact book, which is quite famous, and it's very, very thick. And um, I've probably got every person I've ever worked in in that book, within that book, but I use my phone. I use my phone a lot. I always remember going to a, or meeting Ita Buttrose, like about, 50 years ago and I, butter, I said never throw away a business card and I've always kept to that and I've always kept this as cards and I do have a sort of a box which is everything's in alphabetical order but pretty much everything's in my phone so if my phone went missing I'd lose a lot of contact. Yeah I, I can pretty much get. You know they used to say people are six degrees from separation. I think in my case, people are like one degree of depression. I've got numbers of amazing people.
0: Excellent. Um, I'm always interested in the pathways that people have taken to to end up at their, their occupation. So let's go back to the beginning. You, you're a Melbourne girl?
1: I'm Melbourne born and bred, yes. I was born in Caulfield. I was born in 1948. which seems <laughs> a long time ago. Um, and I loved living in Caulfield as a kid. Um, and yes, a Melbourne through and through.
0: And what was your exposure to the arts like? Uh, did, did the family were they regular theatre goers, or were you, you following bands?
1: Um, it was my mother. It was a direct result of my mother. My mother took me to see Rudolph nurell My mother loved singing. She would always sing Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett. That was always on in our house. And Mum knew everything about the movie stars. Mum would say, "Oh, there's." Garson. She was married six times. She was married to such and such. And I just used to look in wonderment at her. She was very glamorous. And she really introduced me and all the kids really to music. And uh, she loved Bob Dylan too. And I got my love of him from Bob, my mother. But my mother took me to the theatre to see Rudolf Nureyev when I was a little girl. And I remember seeing him jump. He leapt from one side of the palais theatre stage to the other and i thought that's it i want to meet people like him and i want to work in that business i loved it i loved the theater i loved the crowd i loved the whole feeling and to go to the theater was a really big deal but yes it was mum. direct result of mum.
0: did you have any aspirations for performance or was it always perhaps behind the scenes
1: no, I'd love to have been a singer. I'd love to have been able to sing like, you know, Annie Lennox or, yeah, Maria Callas or, yeah, I'd love to have, but I never, you know, I never pursued it. I sang at school, in school concerts. Um, I sang Stupid Cupid, Cupid once and bought the house down. I was, oh God, I must have been about 12, 14 or something. <laughs> but um, I loved that. But I do love, I love, I really get it. You know, I get performance. I get the love the crowd gives the performer. I get the energy. I get it. I love it. It's, it's beautiful. And it's so addictive, as you know. I mean, there's nothing better than going to theater and seeing a great performer. So. Um,
0: and great performers are like racehorses, aren't they? They have a particular yes. temperament.
1: Oh, yes. And I've worked with some of the best. <laughs> I won't immediately who springs to mind is Nana um, Scrooge, who I just adored, but she's a great performer and wonderful and demanding in her own special way. All of them, Katie Lang, yes, oh, they're amazing. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, of course, when you're a publicist, you see them immediately. You, you see whatever they're – about immediately you know they're poisoned you know, you know that they want a brandy before the performance of it. you know you know they're poison you get to know them very quickly and when they they can turn on you on a dime and then you're having red wine after the show and talking about all their lovers you know it's just the best
0: well i'm going to dig a little deeper uh, a little bit later in the conversation um about certain personalities but um i believe you started in nursing
1: yes i did well, I did because well, sort of by default, really, I, I, I had a very strict upbringing. My father wanted me to work in the bank. He was a bank manager, but I failed at maths, so I couldn't get into the bank. So then mum and dad didn't quite know what to do with me, and I didn't quite know what to do with myself because dad was like, you've got to go and work in the bank like I did. And so there was a woman that lived over the road. Her name was Elaine McCracken. Great name. And she worked at the Box I know she worked at the Box Hill Hospital, and she got me a job to study nursing at the Box Hill Hospital. Oh, God! Anyway, off I went in my little uniform, my comfortable shoes. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't like it very much. I loved the doctors. I thought they were a bit of a treat. I do remember that because I was from a very strict background and I went to an all-girls school where we weren't allowed to talk to boys. So suddenly I was out in the workforce and I was seeing this sort of, well, it wasn't glamorous, but it was certainly different at the Box Hill Hospital. But I didn't last there very long. I didn't want to be a nurse. Anyway, no, I didn't want to be a nurse. But I you wanted to work some-
0: in a a different type of theatre.
1: Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Very funny, Peter.
0: Oh, well, you know, we try.
1: (laughs) But I always thought that, I I mean, I can honestly tell you, the the doctors are always treated like they're, and they are, like they're gods. You know, the doctors always get, we had to open the doors for the doctors. I don't know if they are Oh, really? oh, yeah, you have to open those double doors and, you know, the surgeons would come flying through like George Clooney, you know, on the telly. Yeah. And, yeah, I always remember thinking, oh, this is so important. And I, so I always saw the rock star element of the doctor. And I always sort of quite liked that. I always thought that was glamorous. But, um, no, I, I wanted to get the hell out of there. So, yeah, so do you want to know what happened next?
0: Well, I, can I suggest that perhaps you were reading the newspaper and you yes. discovered that there was a new television station being born?
1: I did. And I saw, and it was just bricks and mortar and it was Channel O and it was being built in Nunawading, Wadding. And I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to go and work there. And because I lived in Box Hill, which was like the end of the world, that changed me personally, moving to Box Hill. I don't know if you want to talk about that, but because we moved from Caulfield to Box Hill, which was just ghastly. Anyway, um, I quite wrote Because a- outer
0: suburbs of Melbourne, aren't they?
1: Yeah, very much so. Like unmade roads, little weatherboard home that my dear father would have paid a lot of money for because they had two more children, my sisters, and so there was a bigger family. You
0: need more and space. And I kept walking
1: up. Yeah, and I kept walking around the house going, I hate this house, it's horrible, why are we here? It must have been awful for Dad. And I uh, became quite reclusive because I used to be very outgoing when we lived in Caulfield. I was sort of, yeah, anyway. Um, so I wrote, to, I wrote to Channel O and one night the phone rang at home in Box Hill and Dad answered the phone and she said, Diane, there's a Paul Britnell on the phone for you. And I went, oh, so I get on the phone. And I was young. I was about 16. And it was Paul Britnell who was from Channel O and he offered me a job. He got my letter and he offered me a job. So I went over for an interview and that was the, that was the rest of my life plan. My parents were horrified. That's, Absolutely some um...
0: It's a great lesson to a young person to take that terrific initiative to actually sit down, write a letter and express yes. your desire to be involved in yes. this industry.
1: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, it's, and it is. And I have told, told that story in lectures, like I used to a lecture to the media student. It's hopeless now so trying to lecture to a media student, by the way, because they know everything. But... Um, I, I have told that story many, many times, and I've always told people about the power of letter writing. You know, the power of a handwritten letter, wow, you know, in those days. So there you go. And, um, yeah, well, my father thought I'd lost my mind, and, um, yeah, and off I embarked on this fantastic journey working on TV. Um,
0: Channel O became Channel 10, of course.
1: Yes, it did.
0: So what sort of jobs and did you start in at Channel uh, Channel?
1: I started off in the film library and I was filing 16-mil commercials. So, you know, like Colgate was 661, you know, Colgate, whatever, all the little commercials, like, you know, car commercials. So we're just racks of these 16-mil um, commercials and we used, I used to have to file them back into the filing system. So, yeah, I worked in the film library. It was all about filing. And because and everything was done through telecine then, you know, so all the commercials were filmed and videotaped. And, and there's always dramas if we lost a videotape or we lost a commercial. Oh, my God. You know, these little boxes, they were my life and I loved it. And, of course, it was very difficult because my father didn't have a point of reference, you know, this was a whole new thing and um, –
0: you are effectively running know. off and joining the circus, I guess.
1: Yes, I was. <laughs> <laughs> I was. I was. Absolutely I was. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it was very strange. But, you know, my mother always talked about how when I was younger and I used to love watching telly and I loved watching Graham Kennedy and I used to say to mum, mum would be making the dinner, you know, putting the peas on and, and um, having a brandy. And... Uh, I'd say, Mum, how did Diane Kennedy get his clothes? Where does Patty Newton buy addresses? And Mum would go, I don't know, Di. Ask your father.
0: <laughs> As if he'd know. And
1: he'd say, I don't know, Di. Ask your mother. And that was sort of what my younger sisters always say. How Mum and Dad could never answer my questions. And they'd go, why are you interested in all that? And I'd sit down watching telly with a notebook. And I'd write down things that people said on the telly. You know, I was fascinated by all of that world. Perry Kono, oh, yeah.
0: Well, of course, t- television was a, a, still a young media, I guess. Very, at that time very. In Australia.
1: Very new. It was very new. And therefore, it was exciting. Yeah, a lot of l- in-
0: learning on the job?
1: Yeah, learning on the job, very much. And then I'd sort of wander around the station and think, what do I want to do? I always thought what do I want to do next, what do I want to do? And I wanted to become a director's assistant. I wanted to be where all the action was, in the studio, doing all the shows, you know, working on all the shows. So I trained. I'd work, you know, in the film library and then I'd go upstairs and get trained to become a director's assistant. I loved that.
0: So you eventually went from zero or channel O to nine with the Don Lane Show.
1: Yes, I did. Peter Thayman, um Now, that was another thing. You know, I wrote to uh, David Evans, lovely David Evans, who was the general manager. And because I wanted to get out of Channel Because, and when you're working in a in a world like that, it's hard to you know, and you end up living together and sleeping together and, you know, parties together. You know, together, you know what the like. Yeah, and,
0: and, and it was I nine, guess, nine, I guess, that had the uh, all the big live variety shows.
1: Yeah, too. they did. Yeah, and they had... They had the Don Lane show and I wanted to work on that show. So I wrote to David Evans and I got a job working on that show. That was great. That was like seven years of my life, which was, that was the top rating show. We rated 33, 31, 33, Monday, Thursday night. Great time. Wonderful.
0: The show featured an endless train of stars. Is that the the first time time that you're starting to sort of uh, get to know and work with uh, big celebrities?
1: Mm. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and it was like this is my tribe. You know, I felt totally at home with all those people. And also it was wonderful to get away from my home because, I mean, with all due respect to my parents and everything, and then Dad particularly, he was so strict. Um, it was so great for me to get out and be able to express myself because I came from a family where if I opened my mouth, I got into trouble. No, so... Um, I had to be very careful walking on each shelf if time, not to upset anybody. Um, so to go to television where I could just be who I was was fantastic and to meet these great people. So, yeah, I was working with John Lane who was just fabulous and Bert Newton and, yeah, and meeting people like David Bowie and who was just gorgeous and, you know, Bob Hawke, all these fabulous people that were just sort of household names. And, oh, I fitted it in beautifully.
0: So, are you working um, in publicity at that point, or are you more a production no, no, assistant?
1: I was like a production assistant, and then I went on to become a producer. Right. So I was one of the producers, sort of training up to be a producer. There was we were called segment producers, so we were responsible for booking the artists, booking our ads, and you'd, you know you get to speak to all these people. And in those days, people would come into the studio in the afternoon, and you'd have a pre-chat which was great, and then they'd come back at night. I mean, that would never happen now. No. You know, Juliet Prowse. Do you remember Juliet Prowse? Oh, yeah,
0: fantastic singer-dancer.
1: She she was fabulous and she came in and she was all legs, you know, she was gorgeous. And I remember she sat around in the pre-chat and she said she'd talk about everybody except for Elvis Presley. And we were like, oh, but you've got to talk about Elvis Presley because she was. You know, she did *G.I. Blues* with him, and yep. I think yeah. And um, anyway, so we just let it go, and she talked about all other things. Anyway, and she said, "Oh, I'll tell you a little thing about Elvis Presley." And we went, "Oh, what?" And she said he was the best kisser she'd ever met, and we just thought that was delicious. You know, things like that—you just yeah. sort of look and thought, "Oh my god!" And she. Yeah, she was. I just remember her vividly. She had red hair, and she was just all legs, beautiful.
0: There you go. You're one degree of separation from Elvis, Di.
1: Yeah. Well, I got a bit closer to that when last year I worked with Priscilla Presley, but that's another story. She was great. He great. must have been something else at Elvis Presley. He must have been incredible. Yeah. Just yeah. From you know, but anyway, I digress. So yeah, so all these uh, fabulous so- students come. But the other thing that a lot of people would come in in the afternoon and they'd be great. And then they'd come back at night smashed out of their (laughs) mind, drinking, taking pills, you know, getting ready for the performance. So you, you know, you'd see a whole different personality in the, in the evening and go, where's that person that was in here today? You know, yeah, that happened a lot.
0: I have to smirk with the, the, lot, our use of technology now. Doing recording this conversation via Zoom. Um, back at the Lane Show, you know, he'd talk to Hollywood celebrities via satellite. Yes, he
1: did, and I did all those. I was in charge of all those things. Yes, great. And that now was look at amazing. us. Huh?
0: Now look at us. You're via satellite from Melbourne. I
1: know, isn't it amazing? It's just amazing. But in those days, it was so incredible. And there was etiquette, you know, like if you had a – and we used to have big stars, But John used to always – we'd always say, John, you need to be in the studio, you know, ready to go as soon as they come and sit in the chair. So many times he wasn't. Oh, You know, wow. and there'd be Anthony Quinn sitting in the chair going, are they coming? You know, we're going to do the interview soon, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, they were big days.
0: And enormous yeah. expense too, I guess, to uh, to have those
1: massive.
0: satellite yeah, interviews. Massive.
1: A lot, and you'd only have a certain amount of time because, and then they'd, you'd, they'd run out of time. So you'd, you'd only book the satellite for like 10 minutes because it was so expensive. Uh,
0: now, you went off to, to do radio uh, with Don, didn't you, at, at 2UE in Sydney?
1: Yes, I did. That was really great. Don wanted me to come up there and produce him. And yes, I went, I went off to, um, to do radio in Sydney. I went to Roadshow. I was asked to go and work at Roadshow. Village Roadshow and their advertising department before that
0: and yep. that was great and that's
1: where I really got the, um, the interest to become a publicist doing that sort of stuff because again I was working with big stars who came out to promote their movies so I got to meet some great people there too. But yes going to radio with Don that was really good um, that was when Brian White, who was a lovely radio man, uh, wanted to do like a syndication. He wanted to syndicate Melbourne and Sydney together and it was a disaster. It didn't work and now they're doing it again and it's still a disaster. You know, we've got a guy from Sydney talking about Sydney all night while we're in Melbourne and it just doesn't work. But yeah, Sydney was great, loved it, loved working with Don. had a close relationship with Don. Um, and I was very friendly with his wife, Jane, and they had a baby, and that was all very much my life at that stage. Yeah. All right. Tom was an nice amazing person. Yep. Um, yeah, I
0: only met him once, and he was absolutely delightful.
1: Yes. Very charismatic man. Very. And a great kisser. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Just like Elvis. So so what does a, tell me what a a producer um, in radio does. Is that, you're wrangling the guests and writing scripts? Yeah,
1: writing scripts, wrangling the guests, making sure that all the commercials, you know, you work in with the advertising department, make sure that it'll fit in all the libraries and all the commercials go to where at the right time. And yeah, certainly getting the guests, making sure they're either on the phone or they're in the studio. It was a very busy job. Um, but it was a great family those, in those days at 2UE. We had a lot of fun over there in North Sydney. And we used to go to the pub on the corner. I can't remember it now. And uh, it was like a big family. And Kerry Packer would come in, and we'd all have to stand around. And this enormous man, Kerry Packer, would come in, and we just think of this, he was Father Christmas. You know, he was just larger than life.
0: Yeah, quite an imposing a, presence. Was,
1: oh, Extraordinary. I mean, I've met a lot of famous, fabulous people who've had that magic charisma. But yeah, Kerry Packer certainly took the cake. Wow, amazing.
0: Did you ever witness a, a, a Packer tantrum?
1: No, but I knew a lot of people who did. You know, to get into an elevator apparently with Kerry Packer on your own, is, you know, and if he says what's his name, if he had a bone to pick. Yeah, and they go, you know, and you, do you, you like your job? And, you know, he was one of those people that, um, you know, he was renowned for chipping people huge amounts of money and, um, you know, there's a great story about this woman. He stopped off at a side road cafe and there was a waitress who served him and he said to her, you know, how long have you been working here? And she said, I'm saving up to buy new tea. And... um yeah, and when and when he left, he left her a tip of about 15 grand or something. It's quite famous, that
0: story. Wow, that's fabulous. Yeah,
1: but he, he did that a lot. And, you know, you see all those shows um, on Current Affair or whatever in those days and there'd be a homeless woman with six kids and, you know, she couldn't eat all that sort of thing. And then all of a sudden there'd be a phone call, you know, from Kerry Packer to say, send her a you know, five grand or get her a house or, Put her in a rented property or something, you know, he was very renowned for that. He very was generous, very, kind.
0: Mm, very so. Working at Roadshow, you're in marketing. Are, are you, I, I yes. guess, just to, to touch on that again, you're handling uh, those big celebrities as they're out on their press junkets, I guess, are you?
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and they were, they were there was a lot of pressure because a lot of them don't want to do all that and they have to because it's written into their contract. And, um, a lot of them are happy to if they've got points in the movie. Sean Connery was one of my favourites, and he had points in his movie because he's not silly. So he had points in the James Bond um,
0: franchise.
1: Franchise, yeah. And um, so he was happy to talk to anybody. So he was charming with the media. A lot, of, a lot of them are. You know, Dudley Moore was fabulous with the media. But, you know, some of them, Patrick Swayze didn't like doing media at all. He really, you know, you had to really push him. And a lot of them will say, um, uh, you know, you do these schedules which take forever to set up with all the radio and TV and whatever, and then you go into the hotel to pick them up and they go, I don't want to go today, Come and change it all tomorrow? (laughs) (laughs) What a headache. Yeah, Ruby Wax was like that. Who was? Ruby
0: Wax.
1: Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Ruby Wax was one of those people, um, I actually quite liked it, but she's very, very highly, you know, they're, they're really unique human beings, these performance, And you get drawn into their vortex. So if they're, if they're a bit neurotic or whatever, you get drawn into that. And, uh, well, I do, I do, because my mother was quite highly strung. So I used to, I, I could sort of work with all that stuff. I knew how to manage it. But yeah, I remember setting up a red, um, a lot of threads, Ruby Wax and Sydney. And, um, and then she'd say, let's go to the Japanese restaurant around the corner and do the interview there, get the journalist to come and meet us there. You know, and that sounds fabulous, but to actually get, you know, to actually get that happening is like, and the journalists are going, where? But I'm in the foyer at the hotel. Like, why are we going there? And, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And you've still got to be nice and charming.
0: I guess some of those folk abuse their celebrity a little bit.
1: Oh, very much so, yeah, very much so. I always wonder what i I always used to say that to myself, What would I be like you know, and I think I'd be terrible, you know, like there are people who walk around in the hotel room, put their finger on the furniture, you know to check if it's clean or not. You're joking and they and they go, "Oh, I suppose I can stay here." Oh yeah, unbearable.
0: So it's a bit of a power play, I guess, too.
1: Oh, all the time, and testing you all the time. Brian Ferry was like that, very much so. Oh, yeah, very difficult. Like, well, you know, they're very full of their own importance. It doesn't take away from their talent, but there's a lot of them that are very full of their own importance, and, you know, and so everything has to be at a certain standard. And, you know, the windows have to open, or the windows, you know, or there has to be a balcony. So he gets everybody into the room and all the luggage and just travel by plane and all the corset. And then they'll come out and say, I don't like it, he hasn't got a piano, and there's no balcony. Get me a piano and get me a balcony. Oh, okay.
0: Were you ever aware of any... One... Sorry.
1: There was one very well-known performer um, who used to have to be called Mrs... Miss Ross. You could never call her by her Christian name, but it has to be Miss Ross. And Miss Ross was staying <laughs> in North Sydney in this fabulous house with three swimming pools and oh, and um, it was a beautiful home. Anyway, we were at the house doing media and it started to rain. And she rang the staff at the hotel in the city in Sydney and said, could you send someone over to bring the uh, outdoor furniture in? It's raining.
0: That's obscene.
1: So I ran out and said, I'll do it. I'm like, no, no. But you know, that's oh God, I hope I get sued. <laughs> <laughs> you when's your book?
0: When's your book coming out?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Everyone wants me to write a book. But you know, but look, good. You know, but that's who she is and that's the era she comes from. Yeah. And, you know, she's used to having stuff that will do that. God love her. When she stood up and note her mouth, God, I mean, what a... So much yeah. Ross. And those dresses. Oh, extraordinary. You forgive them anything. You forgive them anything. That's why I always treat everyone like a rock star. Always.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm certainly feeling like Elvis at the moment. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Way you put
0: tape out. <laughs> <laughs> now, you're obviously, you're obviously developing quite a reputation at being good at your job because the Visard show poached you.
1: Yes, they did. Yes, Steve came and met me at Siebel Townhouse and helped me come and work with him. And I said yes. And it brought me back to my hometown in Melbourne and I loved working with Vizard on the Visard show. I made lifelong friends there, including Stephen. I just think he's... Um, he could be. He could have been prime minister of his country if he.
0: Well, again, L- like Don Lane, terrifically yes. charismatic personality. Very,
1: uh. very, very charismatic and very clever. What a brain Steve Isaacs has. Very smart, a very funny man. Like, oh, we had the best time. Uh, working on the Bioside show, yeah, it was just great. And he's like the Royal Family, you know, he never carries money. So oh. um Jennifer Cut after the show sometimes we would we would Jennifer um and I would she was news reading on the show. And we would go to Francois in South Yarra for dinner and Steve would come with us. And this is late at night, it would be like eleven thirty at night. And Steve would never have any money. <laughs> never. I just always remember that all those funny times we had with him. He was wonderful. He was, um, yeah. He did, he had the attention span of an hour You know, he'd be wandering around with art gallery um, folders, you know, because he loves art and wouldn't be concentrating on the show. But we did love him. We all loved him. There so were great times working on the VFA show.
0: Well, live television would be tremendously exciting, I guess.
1: Very. That's very exciting because it's so instantaneous and you get those magic moments, you know, of working on the show. I always remember Mel Gibson coming on the show and we were standing (laughs) waiting to go on and because there's like 200 people in the audience, he looked down at me and said, "Um, is there a live audience? And I said, yes. And he said, oh, I can't possibly go on. There's a live audience. Why wasn't I told? You know, I said, there's a live audience and you're on in a minute. And he went on.
0: (laughs) I guess, I guess you, have to, you have to pull rank sometimes and just become yeah, mother and say, now behave, yes. you're doing this.
1: Yeah, yeah you do. Oh, and yeah. And that's what they
0: require, I guess.
1: They do. And they respect you for that. You know, Harry Connick, Jr., what a fabulous, fabulous man he was. Um, very much so. Yeah, I always remember uh, doing a radio interview with him uh, and he wanted to do it at his hotel room, which is fair enough. He's charming. Charming. And um, anyway, the, the girl that came in to record the radio interview, she didn't, it actually didn't record. And, um, and, oh, so when they got back to the studio, they had to ring me and say, it didn't record, can we come back and do it again? And uh, so I had to ring him up and ask if we could do it again. Now, a lot of publicists would say, boo, guy, you should not have done that. You know, you should have gone, well, you lost the interview. No, sorry. It was with Richard Stubbs, actually, and Richard was just mortified that it happened. And um, anyway, I rang back and spoke to uh, Harry's publicist. Because a lot of them bring their own publicist as well from America. And this girl said, are you kidding me? I'm not going to ask him that question. Forget like, it. I've worked with him for 12 years. He'll throw me out the room. And I said, can you please ask him? Can you please ask him? And she said, Look, I don't want to ask him, to be perfectly honest. I was like, what? It's terrible. It's insulting. Anyway, she went and asked him and he said yes, come back in and he would do it again. Because he couldn't believe that someone would ask him to do that. Wow. She thought that was amazing. Anyway, when I <laughs> when I got we got back into the hotel room, he was he was a little bit annoyed, but not annoyed in a horrible way, just, just like, oh, God, you know. I, everything they do is scheduled down to the minute, you know. They, like, have a massage at three and piano practice at four and dinner at 5.15. It's all, they're all like that, everything. Every moment is allocated. So I sort of threw his afternoon out about well, 40 minutes. Anyway, I have to admit. To,
0: go, go ahead. Sorry.
1: Oh, when he went. Back to America, I got this huge box in the poet's and it was a Cape Spade handbag from Harry. And it was congratulations on all your work and for having the, I think it was the gut or the ball, the American expression, the balls to ask me to do an interview again. And I just thought that, that was fabulous. It says so much about the man.
0: That's great. I have Uh to admit, I never fully relax until I've I've, I've pressed stop on the record button and listened back to see whether, especially when you're doing long-form interviews of an hour or so, it can be shocking.
1: Yes, absolutely. And particularly when you've got that moment with people and they're very present to you for that moment, so their interviews are usually
0: delicious. So just in case, what are you doing tomorrow at (laughs) 9 (laughs) o'clock? You're so I'll I'll send you a, I'll, I, well, I, it'll be a Kate Spade replica. I don't know if I can do the, <laughs> the real thing.
1: Oh, my God. And it was from Barney in New York. I mean, God, I've still got it. I've still got it up, you know, in my wardrobe. It's my precious wrapped in the same paper. And when I go out to a special occasion, I take it out.
0: Bring it out. This Bring is my my Harry, my Harry bag.
1: My Harry bag.
0: Um, The Paul Dainty Corporation, uh, they're doing a lot of live theatre, I guess.
1: They did a lot of live theatre but they also did a lot of live shows and that threw me into the touring world, which was just another world. My first tour, I love Paul Dainty. I've known Paul Dainty most of my life, really. Um, Lovely, lovely man. Exceptional man. And um, so my first tour when I went to work with Paul Dainty was Johnny Cash. And uh, so that was pretty huge. And but you you uh, get to meet their their management and working with working with management on the road that can be tough. That was that was a really it was great, but you really had to be on your mettle. You had to know you know how many people were in the show, how many people were coming. You know, you have to be able to answer every question like that because it's not just a matter of somebody getting out on stage with a guitar and singing. There's a lot of stuff goes on in the background. But Johnny Cash was another interesting man. What a man he is. You know, there's like men and then there's Johnny Cash. <laughs> God, he was gorgeous. There was yeah. a man with charisma. God. Yeah.
0: Yes, he just had to yeah. stand there and open his mouth, didn't he? And, um
1: yeah. Oh, he was a beautiful man. He was a man of God and, uh, he spoke like God. Now, when he opened his mouth, he always thought that's how God would have sounded. But he he, he had a, an electronic Bible, which I'd never seen before, ever. That was like, and he referred to the Bible all the time. And he was, um, a drug addict, a reformed, well, a reformed drug addict. So he could never take medicine. Like a lot of them can't take aspirin if they get a headache or they can't take anything like that because Any sort of drug. Yeah, any sort of drug. They just can't put it. And he had a toothache. And we were in Brisbane and he said, did I know where a Bible shop was? Do you know where a Bible shop is? I said, yes, there's one behind the hotel because you get to know everything when you're. You, you know, you get the surroundings. And there is a very good Bible shop. It's behind the, in the hotel. I don't know if it's still there, but it was excellent. Anyway, off we trotted. We went over the road to the spot because he had a toothache. And he said, I want a Mormon Bible. Like the education you get when you go on the road is just phenomenal, the things you learn. And so he said, I want a Mormon Bible because they teach about healing. And I said, oh, can't." So uh, we went over to the bookshop and we walked in. Of course, the people in the bookshop were like, oh, my God.
0: Anyway, Johnny we, Cash.
1: Yeah, he said, um, do you have a Mormon collection. I want to see your Mormon collection. I need a Mormon Bible. And they went, oh, of course. And I was dropping Bibles and falling over and tipping over cups of tea. So everyone gets very excited when famous people coming to the shop. And anyway, they found a Mormon Bible and he opened it up at the spot, you know, where it says that Jesus will heal the sore tooth bit. Wow, the whole shop just goes, you know, and he's going, Jesus will heal, you know, and it was just magic. It was just amazing. Anyway, he said, I'll have two of those, thank you." And he bought two and he gave me one. So I've wow. still got my Johnny Cash Mormons on level. And it's all there. If you not, I'm not a Mormon, but. You know, if you're having boyfriend trouble or whatever, you open it up and it goes, oh, just leave them, you know, leave them alone, get on with your own life, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> we know what to do, really. Did, did he sign the Bible? No, he didn't. <laughs> he didn't because when you're a publicist, that's another funny thing, like when you're a publicist, you can't run around having a taken with the artist. You can't run around asking them to sign things for you because it's a not about you, it's about yeah, you. Can't,
0: yeah, you, you can't be a fan, you've got to be a colleague.
1: No, no, you can't be. And sometimes it's a little bit hard. But, gee, you do take it all in, though. Like, you, you, do, you do get to see how powerful and healing these people are. Like, these people heal people. Like, you know, when they go out and sing, people just get such joy from these entertainers. Like, Mick Jagger just brings people to life. He's extraordinary yeah. on stage. You no, know, yeah. David Bowie was amazing, I'd say. They're healers.
0: Well, it's that therapeutic it's, power of the arts.
1: Yeah, therapy, Yeah, they're therapeutically powerful and their music and, and the earth moves. I mean, I know I, I'm very excited, excited when I talk about my work and people, fabulous people, because I'm, I'm the same when I go and see Bob Dylan. I, I've seen Bob Dylan about 100 times and I swear the room moves. It shifts. You know, when he's singing, it sort of moves to the right. I saw him just recently at the Roslaver Arena. Amazingly powerful people, these people. And that's why all these people go and see them and all this adoration they get It's fantastic.
0: I imagine you, you have to be pretty organised and disciplined. Are you a fastidious yes. person?
1: Uh, I'm very fastidious when it comes to my clients and my artists that I'm working with, very and I almost get, I'm very territorial and I'm very, um, yes, I like to be in control of, of, of it all. And, um, yeah, I am very organised, very always Attention ahead. to detail. Yes, excellent. But not in my life. Like if you saw <laughs> my kitchen in my office, you'd think, my God, i looks look like, you know, um, Gloria Steinem said that she lives with boxes that still have not been unpacked, and like she's about to walk out the door any minute. You know, like I'm not a very organised person in my home. I've got the papers everywhere, and you know, I live like a student a bit, but never well, in my work. My work I guess is so.
0: There's a lot of yin and yang in all of us.
1: Oh yes, there is. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. And and also, I am. I, you touched on it earlier. Incredible diplomacy and discretion are required in your oh. job.
1: Yeah, very much. You have to have eyes in the back of your eyes, in the back of your eyes. Like you've, And you've got to think before you speak and you've got to put all your secrets away. Like think because you see things that you just really don't want to see sometimes
0: yeah. and
1: you hear conversations that you think, oh, I wish I'd never heard that, but anyway. Yes, you have to be very diplomatic, but always loyal, always loyal.
0: I heard that but there's you a term, sorry?
1: Particularly on the road. And particularly when you're travelling with a lot of men because when you go on the road, you really see what men are about.
0: <laughs> Is that daunting, you know, being being with all those men?
1: No, not really. Just a bit surprised sometimes, the way they behave. Right.
0: Because
1: they're quite, you know, men just want what they want.
0: Yes. That that buffhead mentality can, uh, can come out sometimes.
1: Yeah, it does, yeah. Right.
0: I heard I heard that there is a term used by publicists called O A L. O A L. Is that
1: off all
0: lists? Oh, Does that yeah. ring a bell? Yes. off all lists. I use yes. Ah. I don't go, I don't. I don't use A O L, but I do
1: off all lists. O A L. Yeah, off all lists. Yes, definitely.
0: So, so is it, what? Tell me about that, and that's to do with some gate crashes, I guess.
1: It has to do with people who um, it's sort of. There's quite a few people come under that. Yeah, gate crushers, media that are entitled that they think they should be at a place and they're not invited. Yeah, people that aren't invited to a function, or yeah, and also, um, well, there's a lot of stalkers. You know, stalk fans like. Um, sometimes we're given photographs of people to avoid and people not to allow in, people who just stalk people. Katie Lang, Katie Lang probably has more stalkers than anybody I know. Of. I mean, just crazy women, just crazy women, just wanting to sort of you know, and Mick Jagger too. And so Mick you're you're of,
0: acting as security, I guess, too.
1: Well, you are in a way, yeah. And the thing is with someone like Mick Jagger is men follow, you know, love. Like a lot of men love the Rolling Stones. So a lot of men go gaga over Mick Jagger. And he's the tiniest little thing, you know. Like it's the tiniest little thing, but he gets up there on stage and he's got such presence. But, yeah, you know, I suppose fans as such, over the years, you know, you look back at Rudolph Valentino and... Going way, way back at look when he died, you know, all the fans were throwing themselves in his casket and everything. There's something in human nature that just drives people crazy about celebrity and fame. And yeah, so off all this is, yeah, I, I had a few of those lists and media that would just hang around and they'd be like wanting a story, you know, they'd want to catch them on an unguarded moment.
0: Yes, not fulfilling their part of the bargain.
1: That's exactly right.
0: Tell me about the time that people thought that you were Mrs. Michael Jackson.
1: (laughs) 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 Oh my God, I've got it all on video. I've got it all. My mother had just had a heart transplant or a heart, not a heart transplant, she just had a heart operation and she was not well. Yes, and I was on the road with Michael Jackson and Yes, people thought that I was Debbie Rowe um, who came to Sydney to marry Michael. And we're nothing alike. I mean, she was huge and not very attractive. I was me. And I was working on You're gorgeous. I know, and I'm gorgeous. And I was working on the tour and all the media were out the front of the Sheraton Hotel in Sydney. And Debbie, there was this huge excitement about Debbie Rowe flying in from L.A. And um, somehow or another, the wires got crossed and people, suddenly I walked out of the hotel and people thought I was Debbie Ross. And and I'm going, guys, it's dye, it's me. And they were all hysterical. I couldn't make any sense out of these guys. I'm going, it's me, it's Dice. And oh no, it went everywhere. It was on CNN, it was everywhere. I was on a balcony in Sydney and they took a photo and said, it was her and it wasn't it was me. She was upstairs in the bar drinking gin and tonic. And he was in his, Michael was in his room meeting Eminem. I remember all that vividly, and I remember that whole time of Michael Jackson and the wedding and the whole thing. He was extraordinary. He was he now there was a charismatic character.
0: Yeah, and he eccentric was, too?
1: Yeah. And not yeah. well.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: not well. But eccentric. I became very friendly with his um, chef and I kept in touch with her for a long time. Her name was Akasha and she, in those days, we all had to sort of stay within the hotel. We weren't allowed to go out and we had to be sort of available on a four extension number in the hotel on that tour, I remember. So, yeah, we had to stay within the hotel and we used to just hang out in the hotel and in the bar all the time. We didn't drink all the time. But you become very friendly with the security, and you become friendly with the people that are very close to the artist. The artist is always called the principal. So the principal had he had Akasha, and he had he's the main security guy. So we got very close to them, and he had a stand-in as well. He had a double, a lovely guy from LA who um, had the most beautiful black hair down to his waist, gorgeous guy. But he was he was Michael's double. Yeah, amazing. So Michael was soft and sweet and gentle and kind and um, brilliant on stage. Brilliant, brilliant on stage. And then he was this very stern, grown-up man that would speak like that and be very strict with his dancers. And so he was like two different people. Clearly, two different people.
0: Yin and, and
1: Yang. Yin and Yang again, and complicated. And sad and tragic and yeah, just sad and tragic.
0: Uh, somebody else who got married in Australia was Elton John. Were you at the wedding?
1: No, I wasn't at the wedding. I wasn't. A lot of people think I was, but um, <clears throat> no, I wasn't. Patty Mostyn was at the wedding. She was one of the bridesmaids. Patti Um No, who was another I publicist? Did, I with a, and oh, the Doyen. She was. Yeah. The doyen of publicists, she was fabulous. I still keep in touch with her. But no, she was—they got married at town Townhouse. He married Renata. I remember all that. And um, yeah, they were heady days when Elton was in town when he got married. You know, they were very big party days, and the Town Townhouse was like where everyone went. Everyone went I got engaged at Seville Townhouse to a sound guy from England and. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, really? What happened to that?
1: Oh, he was a say boy and he went off and married somebody from Germany, which I'm very thankful for, um, because it would have been terrible. But, you know, they were heavy days. They were amazing days.
0: This is the 80s? It was,
1: yeah, and yeah. the 70s. They're like coming in on the back end of the 70s and the 80s. They were amazing yeah. days. Oh, the things that went on at the table Town up. I can't even begin to tell you.
0: Oh, uh, well, we'll back have to, to wait for your book.
1: Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But going back to Michael, I've got to tell you, whenever I hear his name, I get sad. I can't look at him, I get sad. But, God, women loved him, you know. Lisa Marie loved him. Brooke Shields loved him. You know, but he just couldn't be saved from himself. So, no, no. yeah, now back to Elton is much more fun.
0: Because uh, you you uh, work with Elton quite a lot yeah, with all I of did- his tours.
1: I worked with Elton a couple of times, yes. Yeah. Well, he's a professional, most consummate professional. It's all about work. You know, they're very diligent, these people. Michael was the same. It's work and it's their craft and it's serious. So they get up at a certain hour, they play, you know, well, oh, not so much anymore. He used to play very hard, but they get up and they very diligent about their work, rehearsal time. Yeah, it's all very serious.
0: There's a lot riding on them, I guess, uh, the occupation yep. and employment of a lot of people. Um,
1: Absolutely. Huge fan base
0: that are coming to yes. be not disappointed. And if you muck up, I mean, yes. that could seriously oh, affect your career.
1: It's just terrible. No, it's really terrible. I remember working with Rod Stewart and Rod Stewart didn't didn't sing a, an encore when he did his show here in Melbourne and he didn't sing Sailing. I think it's the song Sailing or Sailing. Mull sure of Kintyre.
0: No, no, that's Paul McCartney, sorry. Uh,
1: that's Paul McCartney.
0: Do you think um, I'm sexy? No. <laughs>
1: <laughs> anyway, it was one of those songs. And yeah. uh, he, didn't, he didn't sing an on, encore. And you know that these people went nuts. Like audience people were ringing up 3AW going, Rod Stewart didn't do an encore, blah, blah, blah. So we had to get a statement from him. And as he said, you know I just did a three-hour show and I was pretty, he was pretty tired. But, you know, oh, no, people, you know, the power of the people, they want more, they want every, every little last drop from the artist. Yeah, incredible.
0: Wow. Um, before we finish, just tell me about the helicopter ride with Simon and Garfunkel.
1: No, that wasn't me. Wasn't that you? No. Oh.
0: I read it in in a, in a media report that I was um,
1: really. That I was in a helicopter with, with Simon no, Garfunkel.
0: Was, why weren't you? No, honey. <laughs> why
1: weren't I? No, yeah. I was in a helicopter with Cliff Richard.
0: Cliff Richard.
1: That was fun, but it was no big deal. It was just helicopter ride.
0: Just going from A to B.
1: Yeah, we just went from A to B, and he just kept, he was funny. He was a funny man. Yeah, and he was just, um, he was really sweet. He was very religious. And uh, I remember one day he was sitting around reading fan mail and you'd have to go to them and say, would you like to meet? And I mean this with all the love in my heart. Like, You get letters from fans saying, I haven't got very long to live. Can I bring my auntie and my uncle and my sister and my brother and me? Can we come back and meet you backstage afterwards? And a lot of the people are fabulous. You know, A lot of the artists are great. Michael Jackson was great like that. He met lots of fans backstage, and you know, you'd have to be there backstage to make sure they all came back out again. But, you know, he was very, very gentle, generous at his time. But Cliff Lynch had made me laugh because we were sitting around. He wanted to go to the tennis, and I said, can we go through these letters? You've had lots of requests, And there was one lady who wrote, please, please, please. Can I meet you? I've loved you for 45 years and I just really want to come backstage. Could you please ask the Lord if, if I could come backstage to meet you? And he said to me, hang on just a second. And he put his face up to the sky and he came back and he said, the Lord said no. <laughs> 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 God, that was fabulous. God, that made me laugh. Anyway, with that, he he put down his napkin on the table and said, I'm off to the tenant. Very sweet man. Brilliant,
0: brilliant. Di, what's the best part of your job?
1: Seeing the articles in the paper, seeing the coverage on the telly, seeing, always getting those spots in the paper and the and the coverage. That's the best part. Yeah. That's, and that's what I love to live till, the, till the, the end, when they take my mobile phone off me and go, I that's that you can't do any more. Just seeing it on the news at night make you know the picture in the paper. It's just worth a thousand moments, a thousand
0: moments. Brilliant. Lovely. Well, this is this has been worth a thousand moments as well. Di, it's it's lovely to eventually catch up and um, explore your wonderful career. Uh, thank you for thank for your time you, today.
1: Oh, thank you, thank you. It's been a joy, and I'm glad we finally did it.
0: Yeah, yeah. And again, I'll, one more time, I look forward to the book. Thank you. I'll send you the first copy. OK. See ya.
1: Thanks, Peter.
0: And that was my delicious conversation with publicist Die Roll. It's a conversation that we've had lined up for a couple of years. Indeed, when the podcast began, Die was always on my wish list. Geography was never in our favour, and it's ironic that it took a pandemic to allow us time and a platform to record the episode. The lovely Die Roll. Have you subscribed to Stages yet? do so and keep up to date with every new guest episode as it is released. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and through Wooshka, our hosting platform. And please take the time to rate and review the podcast in the iTunes directory. It helps to grow our audience and reach more stages listening. As always, I'm Peter Ayers. Catch you next time on Stages.